This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Despite the efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines in increasing disease resistance and in reducing incidence of severe symptoms and death, many Americans have decided to decline to be vaccinated as an effort to increase vaccination rates and in the absence of legislative action from the U.S. Congress, President Biden called for a federal vaccine mandate, first for nearly 100 million American workers through the Occupational Health and Safety Administration, or OSHA, and also through the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS. The resistance to these federal mandates has culminated in legal challenges, ending with the Supreme Court determining the OSHA mandate unconstitutional, but also allowing the CMS mandate to take effect. What can these different outcomes of these two cases tell us about the competing powers amongst our branches of government? And how does it reveal the differing views of the Constitution itself held by the justices on the Supreme Court? My guest today is Ilya Shapiro, Vice President of Cato Institute, Director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies, and publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Mr. Shapiro has written extensively about the Supreme Court, including his recent book, Supreme Disorder, and will share with us his views on the merits of these two cases and what the decisions can tell us about the views of the nine sitting justices. When I return, I'll be joined by constitutional scholar Ilya Shapiro. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now joined by Vice President of Cato Institute and constitutional scholar Ilya Shapiro. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Ilya. Good to be with you. Happy New Year. Thank you. All right, we're going to be talking about the Supreme Court uh, recent rulings on the OSHA and the CMS vaccine mandates, uh, about which you've, you've written a great deal about these cases. Uh, but before we get into constitutional law, I want to uh, offer our our listeners a little bit of a, a civics lesson. I, I think it, it might ar arguably be a high school level civics lesson, but I think it's important for background uh, uh, about understanding why uh, there might be tension between uh, uh, an executive branch ruling uh, and the constitution. So let's, let's start at the beginning. Um, we know that we have a Congress to make laws and we have an executive branch to implement the laws. Um, how do these concepts play out when we're talking about something like a vaccine mandate? Right. Well, throughout the pandemic, there's obviously been lots of uh, innovative, novel public policies that we haven't had to contemplate. Most of the action that's reached the Supreme Court, at least until this month, uh, has involved states' policies with claims based on individual rights. Um, uh, they're restricting my freedom to get together in a church and, and worship. They're closing my gun store, you know, hurting my Second Amendment rights, uh, economic liberty claims. Um, that is different uh, because state power, the nature of state power is different from uh, this most recent argument and decision by the Supreme Court regarding federal mandates, whether we're talking about the, the OSHA private sector business uh, mandate or uh, CMS, uh, Health and Human Services, 
requirements for uh, uh, workers of facilities that receive uh, federal Medicare or Medicaid funds or others that, that have not reached the Supreme Court, like federal contractors or federal employees. The federal government gets its powers from the Constitution, from the U.S. Constitution, which enumerates uh, the items that the federal lawmaking authority uh, can affect. Um, things like raising armies or coining money or regulating interstate commerce. A lot of federal programs are, are based uh, on that latter. Um, state uh, powers, on the other hand, are uh, kind of background inherent powers of a sovereign, what, what's referred to as the police power, uh, which doesn't uh, refer necessarily to the cop on the beat or the, uh, the old band featuring Sting, but rather uh, a general uh, authority to legislate or regulate for the public uh, health, safety, welfare, and morals as, as traditionally defined. And so typically with various state regulations during the pandemic, um, the, the claims are not that the state is going beyond its power. Sometimes there are claims under state constitutional law that the governor or uh, health executive is, is overstepping his or her bounds under state law. Uh, but uh, it's gener these are generally claims uh, that, that the, the government is, is violating various kinds of individual rights. Um, uh, and the, the most important case in the Supreme Court that gets talked about a lot in this context is from 1905 during the smallpox epidemic uh, in, uh, in, in, in the United States and, and throughout the world, a case called Jacobson versus Massachusetts, where that state uh, required people to get vaccinated or pay a $5 fine, which is about 150 bucks in today's uh, money, uh, and the Supreme Court okayed that. Um, but again, that's a state mandate. What we've been dealing with lately with uh, the Biden administration's federal mandates, uh, most notably the OSHA one that affects, uh, I think it's 84 million people. Uh, the question is, does the federal government have the power to impose that? Uh, and does OSHA, uh, as a regulator of, of workplace safety and conditions, does it have the power to promulgate that kind of requirement on employers? So um, let's let's talk about that. Um, we've got an agency, an ex executive agency that has in its name health and safety. Uh, it's been given the task of keeping uh, workers safe. Um, uh, how much latitude is enjoyed by an executive agency? Uh, naturally, it's an agency is created by Congress. It's given powers by Congress. But uh, uh, how much latitude does it have within those powers? Well, ultimately, the Supreme Court ruled to put kind of the bottom line up front. The Supreme Court ruled, and, and again, this is an emergency procedural uh, uh, case that hasn't been fully litigated on the merits, but I think the, the writing is on the wall if it ever returns to the Supreme Court. Uh, what the court majority, it was a six to three decision, said was that um, the risk from COVID transmission is not a workplace hazard. It's a general hazard of life in America, in the world, uh, during a pandemic. And so, in effect, if OSHA had the power to uh, regulate with respect to uh, COVID require vaccinations, then there's no limit on what it could do. And at the very least, at the very least, Congress would have had to specify explicitly that uh, it was giving OSHA the power to impose these kinds of, of mandates. And the only uh, clear statement we have from Congress is a resolution of disapproval by the Senate uh, that was passed uh, in, in December after OSHA uh, promulgated its emergency rule. So, um, you know, this this is, you know, even if OSHA is constitutional, setting aside that kind of deeper uh, constitutional debate about whether regulating workplace conditions is a proper regulation of uh, interstate commerce or things that affect interstate commerce, setting that aside, uh, uh, the, the, the court found, and I agree with this, um, 
that that uh, what OSHA was doing here goes beyond uh, regulating workplace conditions. So um, I just want to be clear on this, and again, I don't want to split hairs, but um, it, it, these were emergency orders. But in theory, if if Congress had given them the right to uh, uh, explicitly uh, mandate vaccines, then this would not have been an issue. It would have been a different sort of case. So what the Supreme Court decided was based on statutory law that the um, uh, OSHA uh, has powers uh, to address grave dangers uh, in the workplace when they're necessary to do so. That's the emergency standard. And OSHA has a not a very good track record with these emergency, what are called ETS, emergency temporary standards. Uh, it has uh, until uh, this one, so this is the 10th time it's ever implemented an emergency standard. Of the previous nine, six were challenged in court and only one was fully upheld. So uh, courts have been wary of giving uh, uh, OSHA that kind of emergency standards. Maybe if it had put in the rule through a normal process of notice and comment, this now gets into administrative law and something that Justice Amy Coney Barrett said during the oral argument, uh, that if it had gone through normal process, maybe there would have been more deference owed or what have you. But regardless, uh, if uh, OSHA was, uh, let's say, if, if Congress had given it the power then there wouldn't have been that statutory uh, claim that it was going beyond its its authority. Uh, instead, it would just be the constitutional argument over whether Congress uh, even has that power to give uh, an executive agency or, or, or whether it's a violation of what lawyers call the non-delegation doctrine, that is delegating away lawmaking authority, uh, or for that matter, uh, a question of whether this kind of uh, uh, regulation uh, would be improper that goes beyond uh, federal authority under the Interstate Commerce Clause. So um, we're talking about um, uh, either going the path of an emergency, which doesn't have a good record track record uh, in the courts, I, I guess largely based on the fact it wants to ensure that OSHA and the executive branch don't have unlimited power, unchecked power. Um, if, uh, again, I don't want to torture this question, but um, I want to get to the concept of major questions, which is, that if the Congress uh, gives broad, uh, let's say vague uh, authority, uh, one can either uh, interpret that as saying it's uh, uh, inclusive, meaning or um, uh, enumerated, I, I guess would be the right term, or it's vague enough to allow anything uh, to, to happen. Was that an issue in, in, in this particular case? Absolutely. Several justices during oral argument uh, two Fridays ago now uh, raise the the major questions doctrine, which which holds that um, Congress does not uh, lightly uh, give authority to executive agencies uh, over major questions. What's a major question? Well, something worth uh, you know significant amount of money or uh, a major change that affects you know, a lot of people's lives. Uh, there there are you know there have been various uh, uh, there's precedents about about what's a major question. Certainly. Um, uh, a vaccination uh, requirement that that affects you know, 84 million people qualifies. There's no doubt about that. And this goes back to what uh, the late Justice Scalia, more than 20 years ago, referred to as the principle that, uh, colorfully, that we don't hide elephants in mouse holes. That is, if you're going to assert, if an administrative agency is going to assert such sweeping authority, there better be explicit uh, authorization by uh, Congress. You can't base that that sweeping authority on 
vague or ancillary uh, statutory provisions or what uh, Justice Kavanaugh during oral argument called a a cryptic uh, provision. So it has to be explicit. It has to be clear. Uh, uh, otherwise, courts will not assume that uh, the agency has that kind of power. I see. Um, so in other words, uh, you know, a, a vaccine that affects 84 million people is the elephant. Uh, we can't find that in the in the vagaries of of, of the uh, OSHA's um, uh, charter, I suppose. Uh, I want to uh, go back to a concept you had. Uh, say, both both in the oral argument and the ultimate opinion, the court left open the idea that OSHA could could regulate more narrowly. Let's say there are workplaces where people have work closely together and it can't be well ventilated or or something like that. You could imagine very targeted sorts of regulation uh, about COVID that are specific to that kind of workplace. I think given the standard that the court, how it wrote its opinion, something like that might pass muster. But I want to get back to an e e more fundamental concept. Uh, there was a lot of debate about uh, what you referenced earlier as a police power. Uh, let's assume we have a mandate uh, from, uh, from OSHA uh, and now it's out there. How does the federal government enforce such a mandate? I, you know, can police power reside with the state? Uh, how does that work? Well, OSHA has health and safety inspectors that uh, enforce all sorts of, of regulation, what kinds of uh, protective equipment you have to have, if it's a dangerous workplace, um, the amount of uh, rest that workers have to have, uh, truckers say, um, although the uh, Department of Transportation has a say in that as well. Um, they're, they're, they levy fines. They, you know, workplaces are, I believe, under the new rule, are supposed to uh, submit their safety plans, submit their um, you know, certifications. I, I, I guess uh, with this new rule that uh, their their workforce is vaccinated or is uh, 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 employing the alternative, which is to uh, produce a weekly negative COVID test. Uh, on uh, the employee's dime uh, and time. The employer does not have to provide them uh, with that. Um, and so uh, the, the OSHA you know, bureaucrats will be reviewing those sorts of things. It's not like instantly when this goes to effect or had it gone into effect, because of course now it's stayed by the Supreme Court, that the very next day anyone who's in violation will be uh, have a SWAT team sent on them. But it's, it's basically the same way that OSHA would would enforce uh, any other kind of regulations. There are inspectors. There are there's paperwork to submit that 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 people then review, uh, and that's uh, that's how they proceed. And there are fines. I think it's up to fourteen thousand dollars a day or per employee. I think that that I saw some pretty pretty significant uh, fines for noncompliance. So I want to develop the idea that you talked about. Cer certain um, aspects of the uh, mandate are too broad. Uh, namely that it's all uh, workplaces. Uh, I, I can imagine we would differentiate between meatpacking, which seems to be the uh, scenario whereby we we can imagine it being a useful uh, mandate uh, versus a lifeguard who's out there on a chair all by himself, unlikely to get COVID while at work. Um, that would be an example of perhaps why the uh, they had a problem with how vague it was. Um, uh, in, you know, Say more about the way it could have been crafted, perhaps a mandate that could have been crafted that might have gotten the blessing of nine justices. Right. There, there are exemptions for uh, uh, purely outdoor uh, workers, although it's a, it's very hard to meet that exemption. So you'd think, oh, so lifeguards like, like your example or landscapers or something like that. But it turns out not very many of those uh, qualify based on how the, the standards are written. And meanwhile, uh, not all indoor workers, conversely, are covered. And for that matter, there's a relatively arbitrary 100-employee 
uh, trigger. So if, if your business has 99 employees, you are not subject uh, to this mandate, no matter how uh, crammed in with whatever ventilation there might be uh, that, that you might have. Conversely, if you're 100 or 101 employees and they're scattered throughout the country working remotely uh, in their own homes, uh, you are covered. So that sort of arbitrariness and lack of uh, tailoring uh, while imposing this kind of burden, I think, is is something that the court looked at. And um, they, they did hint, uh, the justice, it was a relatively short opinion because they produced it, I think, in four or five days after the argument. Uh, but they did hint on the sorts of things that if OSHA now, rather than pursuing the litigation, which is ongoing in the lower courts, and for that matter, uh, I just submitted with a couple of colleagues a regulatory comment, because uh, the period only closes tomorrow, you can give comment for OSHA trying to finalize the rule, not to transform it from an emergency to a, to a regular uh, uh, rule. Um, so we just submitted that yesterday. It's still taking comments, still proceeding with uh, on the understanding that it's it's going. It wants to implement it long term. If it abandons that, goes back to the well, uh, uh, and and recrafts the rule such that it covers, you know, certain tight spaces or uh, has exemptions for employees working remotely, uh, or you know, purely out, you know, relaxes the definition of makes it more uh, common sense definition of what working outside means. That could indeed survive uh, statutory muster because at that point, OSHA is indeed treating different workplaces differently and treating unique risks from an infectious disease uh, differently in certain workplaces. Um, uh, the same way that OSHA requires, um, you know, uh, protective equipment, uh, ventilators, headgear of various kinds, masks, and so forth where they're infectious or other kind of, of, of agents and doesn't just broadly require them for, for every type of, of employer. Does the, um, now we keep referring to this as a vaccine mandate, but it was a vaccine or test and I guess mask mandate. Does that strengthen the argument? Meaning, look, we're not forcing you to vaccinate. We are forcing you to either vaccinate or test. Um, does that make it more palatable, let's say for uh, um, Supreme Court muster? The lower court, the the Sixth Circuit, um, uh, had that looked at this before uh, the um, before the Supreme Court did. There was a dissent from uh, Judge John Bush who pointed out why it actually is a a vaccine mandate. That the the alternative is is sort of ephem ephemeral or so burdensome as to effectively act as 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 coercion towards getting people to to vaccinate in the first place. Um, that you have to do it weekly. You have to pay for it yourself. Uh, OSHA is not providing that. Uh, you have to take your own time to do it. Uh, and I think there have been quotes from the um, um, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Javier Becerra, uh, President Biden, when he announced the mandate back in September before the rule was was made uh, explicit and put on paper, said that uh, we've lost our patience. So it's it's clearly all uh, targeted to get people to to vaccinate. the 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 alternative is not uh, really uh, you know it's, it's it's too burdensome. Maybe if it was truly a a testing alternative such that the government provided the tests and they were available uh, at the workplace or or something like that, maybe it would be evaluated somewhat uh, somewhat differently. So it's perceived to be coercive, uh, uh, forcing people to vaccinate, not 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 having a good faith uh, allowance for those who prefer to test and uh, um, rather than uh, vaccinate. Uh, I, I want to um, move on then to you know the, the meat of your uh, expertise in analyzing and understanding the court and its and its members. Um, we had a 6-3 ruling, as you mentioned, uh, but it wasn't just six anonymous judges and justices and three uh, dissenters. Uh, there were, as I saw it, three 
um, rulings. There was the procurium, which is the majority, which we don't know who wrote. Uh, then there were the um, concurring uh, opinion justices, and there was the dissent. Uh, can you break down the three, three, and three and, and tell us why each uh, decided the way they did? Sure. So the, the procurium, as you said, this is when there's an, a, an emergency or, or some sort of unusual procedural posture. It's often that the court uh, decides it. It's not that they, you know, are ashamed to reveal who wrote it. It's just kind of the, the, the process that they that they generally follow with the, these kinds of procedural postures. Uh, but that was the, uh, to, to use the shorthand, it was the six uh, Republican-appointed uh, justices, so Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Thomas uh, Alito, um, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and and Barrett. And so the three in dissent were, were Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Um, and uh, we've we've covered the majority opinion, I think, in 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 good depth. Uh, the concurring uh, opinion, it was written by Justice Gorsuch with uh, uh, Thomas and Alito uh, joining, uh, made the, went went more into the major questions doctrine and the the issue of who decides um, that uh, it shouldn't be. Uh, it should be the people's representatives. It shouldn't be judges. It shouldn't be um, uh, the, the administrative agencies that 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 uh, after all were not uh, were not elected. And so that kind of plays into what Gorsuch and other contexts have ta has talked about the hydraulic pressures on uh, the, the the checks and balances of our constitutional order uh, and making sure that um, that there is political accountability. It's not just uh, uh, an executive agency, kind of uh, the fourth branch of government, as some have, have called it, beyond the original three that we learned about in grade school, um, that that's taking authority that it that it doesn't have. In dissent, um, uh, it was uh, they, they specified Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan did that they were uh, all three of them were co-authors uh, of it. Uh, they uh, talked about the um, severity of the pandemic uh, and that OSHA specifically was regulated danger, regulating dangers in the workplace. It wasn't regulating uh, people going to uh, optional activities like a baseball game or um, you know, social get-togethers, what have you. Working is, is very important. Everyone essentially needs to work to be able to, to live. Uh, and so um, it's um, within OSHA's power to, to control that workplace. That, that, is, their, that is their argument. So uh, in the reading three, 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 I should add, uh, Joe, uh, maybe comes in more in the in the companion. I mean, uh, you know, there the, 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 the could be a reason why uh, uh, Barrett, uh, uh, Kavanaugh and uh, and Roberts didn't join the supplemental major questions uh, argument, unlike other cases where the more conservative justices write separately. I don't think it was that that concurrence was necessarily more, you know, reaching for more. It was kind of just describing more of, a, of, of the doctrine. But uh, you see more of a split in the in the companion case, which we haven't talked about, but the mandate on healthcare workers in um, providers uh, that that receive federal funding. That's a different type of constitutional and statutory question because it's the government attaching conditions onto its own funding. It's not, uh, you know, what are the powers of a regulatory agency so much? And there, that was a five to four decision to allow the mandate to continue with Roberts and Kavanaugh uh, joining the more liberal justices. Uh, uh, in the majority, so you saw some 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 splits there. So I, I want to uh, uh, get to the uh, CMS case and compare it with this OSHA case, but uh, I, I want to give a proper um, acknowledgement of the dissent. Um, I, it was in questions that uh, um, Judge Sotomayor compared 
let's say a coworker shedding virus with a you know a malfunctioning machine shedding sparks. How is it different? If I'm if I can get um, hurt at work either from sparks or from virus, why is it different? Um, uh, again, acknowledging the the dissent's argument, why is it different if my danger is a virus at work than a uh, you know a, a crane falling on my head? Well, one thing is that people have rights and machines don't. So the court is in, is, is dealing with some uh, rights balancing uh, as well. But also, I think it it really comes back to. Um, uh, the, the fact that the, the risk of the virus is, um, is global um, rather than workplace-specific. So if you leave the workplace, you're no longer subject to these sparks. Uh, but if you, um, if you leave the workplace, you are subject to the risk of, uh, of, of gaining COVID. Um, and um, a vaccine, after all, is not workplace-specific. It's not that you, you get a shot every day at your workplace and, and then it goes away or, or, or what have you. This is, you can't undo it. It's, it's something that's, that's with you forever. It's, uh, I, I guess you could liken it to, um, uh, you know, having to wear a hazmat suit, uh, all, all the live long day, even not on the workplace. Okay. Let's, let's, uh, segue to the, the CMS case, which is fundamentally different and came down differently, right? The, uh, the, uh, Supreme court allowed it to the, the mandate to, uh, continue. Um, you're talking about a different, OSHA is different. We're talking about private uh, companies and workers in those private companies. CMS is a different animal, which they're talking about their own sort of members. Um, describe for our listeners why uh, CMS is different than OSHA uh, fundamentally. So much that OSHA is, is a different agency than CMS is that this is not CMS regulating the workplace per se, but um, and not even and not even saying that all healthcare providers have to do certain things. It's saying that anyone who accepts federal Medicare or Medicaid funds has to comply with certain conditions. And when uh, providers sign up for that fund for those funds, they agree it's part of their contract that OSHA can change the terms uh, for the benefit of public health uh, and safety. Um, there's disagreement uh, between the justices, between the majority and dissent uh, in this case on whether uh, it's clear that a vaccination mandate can be part of that. Um, the dissent accuses the majority of kind of cobbling together uh, disparate provisions that OSHA, that, that CMS has used uh, to change uh, uh, funding conditions over the years to justify uh, this novel uh, type of, uh, of mandate. But nevertheless, this is a uh, almost a contracts case in the sense of um, you know changing the terms of a contract, whether that's allowed based on what you already agreed to, and the strings that attach federal funding that at the end of the day, the provider does not have to, uh, if doesn't like, uh, doesn't have to accept uh, that federal funding. It's, it's, it's different than, than OSHA regulating every workplace, regardless of a connection to a federal program. So it's connected to the fact that the federal government funds these um, organizations and therefore has cer certain prerogatives. I'll just relate it to, as an aside, um, uh, as my fellow veterans in our audience will know, uh, the Department of Defense is, uh, has uh, is always made, had, had always made it clear that it was not our prerogative to refuse a vaccine. Uh, my personal experience is I was dropped into all kinds of places around the world. They consistently lost my shot card, so I probably have enough vaccines <laughs> in me for a small village. Uh, but, but we're not saying that uh, members of CMS who sort of, uh, I guess, accept the terms of um, um, of federal money, uh, they have more prerogatives or rights than a uh, soldier does. Uh, you know, it, it, what, what constrains what CMS could do here? 
Uh, is there anything I know, you know, in, in the military, there is no constraint. They can take your life, but um, CMS is a little different animal. Yeah. And, and what you raise is yet another different type of mandate. That is the federal government acting as an employer, whether of servicemen or, uh, you know, federal workers of other kinds, um, you know, someone, a clerk at the IRS, say, or or for that matter, the, the White House counsel himself. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, the, the power of the government as an employer is different than, than when it's regulating uh, other entities and different again with contractors, the rules of government contracting, and different again with CMS, where again, it's the strings attached to funding. And, and you're right, they can't retroactively uh, add uh, any rules. In fact, in the, in the constitutional challenge to Obamacare 10 years ago, uh, we all know about the individual mandate part that, that John Roberts considered to be a, an exercise of the taxing power. Uh, but uh, we forget that uh, the court at the same time, by a seven to two vote, <clears throat> invalidated the forced expansion of Medicaid, saying that that was coercive. That was adding new conditions. That is, if you want to keep getting Medicaid funds, you have to agree to the Obamacare expansion. That was changing the terms of the game after the fact. So there are limits on the types of strings and how they can be added and when uh, to CMS funding. That, in fact, is one of the disagreements before the between the majority and the dissent in this case. Uh, I don't know if I can draw this link, but uh, tell me if this this follows. From my reading, it seems to me that the court, in its different ruling, one OSHA, it 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 stayed the the mandate, and in, in CMS it it did not. Did it point to history, meaning that OSHA really hadn't had these prerogatives, even in emergencies in the past, and so it won't have it now? And in the past, CMS has had those sort of uh, uh, powers, uh, and therefore uh, the court didn't want to take them away. Uh, is, is this sort of a, from my sort of uh, layman's view, a, a validation of more or less a status quo um, going forward? Well, I think everyone agrees that vaccine mandate is is unique and unprecedented at the federal level because pandemics are uh, unprecedented. You know, the last time we had a major one, the federal government was so large. This is before the New Deal, effectively. I mean, there's some things around polio in the 50s, but a little bit different. Um, and so the, the precedent that we're talking about is um, CMS changing rules on the fly and having more flexibility to do so as um, you know, developments in, in health and safety uh, progress and, and, and what have you. And so there is that argument between the majority and dissent of whether adding this rule and this requirement is like some of the additions of requirements in the past or whether it's qualitatively different because uh, either it affects so many people or um, involves you know, injection into the body rather than you know wearing some protective gear or, or what have you. That's certainly one of the uh, places where the battle is joined uh, over this, whereas in the in the OSHA case, uh, it's not whether you know OSHA has ever done anything like this. It's you know uh, a debate over whether this is truly a regulation of the workplace or something broader with no limiting principle. I want to go right into your uh, as we get close to the end of our show into the your 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 deep expertise in understanding the members of the court um, and uh, help us understand why there was a. Uh, 6-3 ruling on, uh, in favor of uh, staying the mandate and a 5-4 uh, ruling on allowing a mandate. Uh, same nine people. Uh, go, uh, there was some shifting going on. What does this tell us about the court's makeup? Uh, and I'll, I'd also like you to, to sort of uh, address criticisms that the court is perceived or is partisan in its, in its decision making. Um, what do you say to uh, 
uh, to explain either that it, you see it as either partisan or that they are uh, ideologically or intellectually consistent through these two rulings? There are different. Well, first of all, there are different legal issues, uh, and so justices can can certainly disagree. Um, so the the difference is that Roberts and Kavanaugh, who were uh, in the majority in staying the OSHA mandate, were also in the majority in allowing the uh, CMS mandate to to be enforced. Uh, Roberts and Kavanaugh tend to be more pragmatic. Um, uh, I think they they don't see uh, probably the CMS uh, mandate as as an expansion of its power or kind of this threatening and unlimited uh, uh, federal or administrative agency power. They see it as more discreet and tied to the particulars of the, the Medicare and Medicaid statutes. Um, I think that's how you can you can explain that thing. And in, in general, you know, the, the 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 six Republican appointed justices. I think there's a lot more uh, different among them, uh, certainly in, in the outcome and in votes in certain cases, but also how, how they approach um, their craft intellectually, um, the theories they apply. You know, Roberts is minimalist and incrementalist, more pragmatic. Uh, uh, Kavanaugh, uh, while uh, very much skeptical of administrative power, also doesn't want to make waves, doesn't want to uh, you know, wants to adhere to stare decisis, that is uh, sometimes maintaining erroneous precedent because it would be too disruptive to change it. Um, Thomas, on the other hand, uh, a staunch originalist and also doesn't care uh, much, if at all, uh, about stare decisis. Alito is kind of more law and order oriented, defers more to law enforcement and certain types of agencies and, and not others. Gorsuch is the most libertarian of the bunch, if you will, also natural law. I mean, anyway, we, we can cycle through these things. Um, uh, I, I don't think any justice, uh, left, right, whoever, whichever president appointed them is acting as a partisan. I think they, they certainly have different ideological views, different jurisprudential methods and modes, uh, and, and that uh, affects the outcome in, in different types of cases. So, so accusations that the, uh, the court is partisan or driven by uh, politics, you don't see any sort of uh, sign of that. And frankly, regardless of the party of the administration, they probably would have uh, ruled in the same way if there was a different person in the White House uh, directing OSHA. Uh, I think that's right. That, that on your latter point, yeah, I think it was the, they were evaluating the policy, not the, not the president who was promulgating it. Uh, this court, including uh, uh, the most recent nominees, voted uh, uh, frequently against Donald Trump, even, even the ones that, that he nominated himself. Um, uh, less uh, occurrence of that, I think, from the, the justices uh, uh, on the left. Uh, I had a, an op-ed in USA Today, I think it was three years ago, when, when Sheldon Whitehouse, who continues to assail the Roberts Five, now I guess it would be the Six, uh, for, for being partisans and for voting in lockstep. And it, it turns out it's the Ginsburg Four, you know, now would be, I guess, the Breyer Three, who are, are much more together statistically uh, speaking, which, again, is not to accuse them of being partisans or being... Uh, you know, result-oriented. That's just the way the, the different methodologies work. Fundamentally, what we face, and this is, you, you can apply this, this insight um, to a, a host of, of debates over the law or the Supreme Court or our institutions, is that you have divergent interpretive theories mapping onto partisan preference at a time when the parties are more uh, ideologically uh, polarized and, uh, and sorted than they've been since at last the Civil War. So what looks like partisan fights is is really evidence of a, of a different kind of dynamic that certainly we it plays itself out uh, whenever there's a supreme court vacancy again now we're wrapping up i, I want to uh, um talk about the theme in your most recent book on the supreme court um where you say effectively 
when we're deciding what's right and wrong, but rather who decides. Really, it ought to be Congress that decides. And, and these fights in the court are, are a reflection of uh, broader failures uh, to resolve questions in Congress. Um, but I want to talk about the executive branch. Just the last question. Um, the president uh, seemed to have known that the OSHA mandate uh, was likely to be unconstitutional. You may not agree with that, but uh, it seems that they needed to have a quote unquote workaround. Is there political incentive to, in a sense, uh, uh, have a, uh, an executive order knowing full well that it's likely to be struck down merely to, in a sense, score points or give the people what they want? In other words, we, we, may, we want a king. We don't want a, we don't want a, a Congress. Um, is, is, is all of this, in a sense, um, an act uh, whereby we know we're not going to get uh, have success in the course, but it, it's worth it anyway? That's kind of a, a cynical take to have. I think there is some of that going on. Um, same thing with the CDC's eviction moratorium last summer that the Supreme Court blocked, that perhaps uh, the president, the administration wants to have these things in place for as long as they can get away with them until the courts block them. Uh, I think that's a dereliction of duty, a violation of your oath. If you think that it's it's going to be, uh, you know, that it's not not constitutional and that you do it uh, regardless. Um but it's it's certainly part and parcel of a of a long time trend. This is, did not originate with with Joe Biden. Um, Elena Kagan, when she was a professor, wrote a, a, a seminal law review article more than twenty years ago called "Presidential Administration," and it was really presaging this era of the pen and the phone, uh, as was talked about under President Obama, uh, or um, the idea that uh, Congress is gridlocked or dysfunctional. We can you know, put a pin in whether it is uh, dysfunctional or, or not different dynamics going on there. But regardless, Congress is not acting, it's not legislating, and therefore the executive has to act to do the people's uh, business. That's not the way our system is supposed to function. It's not It's not healthy, uh, but that's ultimately why a lot of uh, uh, the biggest political controversies in American life are ultimately decided in the courts and by the Supreme Court, uh, because of course, uh, Congress isn't deciding them and everything's thrown into the executive and then then there's a lawsuit, and, uh, and and the courts have to decide. It's it's not uh, a healthy dynamic, um, uh, but again, it's not necessarily something that just uh, dropped into us uh, during the pandemic or under under the current administration. So we started with a, a, a civics lesson, and we've come full circle around to uh, another uh, civics lesson. I, I appreciate your time uh, with us back on Hubwonk, uh, Ilya. You uh, are a fund of information, and. Uh, I, I think our, our listeners uh, learned a lot today. My pleasure. Take care, Joe. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support the show. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you'd like to help make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would be great if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.